Welcome to Pop Psych 101, where we, licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad and licensed psychologist Dr. Haley Roberts, break down and analyze how mental health is represented in movies, shows, books, and across the pop culture and social media landscape. We will determine what lines up with real life and what is just pop culture fantasy. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad, here with my co-host, Dr. Haley Roberts. Hello, hello. Hello to you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year is <laughs> is when people will be listening to this, and uh, we hope uh, everything is great in the future. Does 2022 feel different? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I hope so. Me too. It's not that far in the future from when we're recording this, but we can we can hope and dream. <laughs> so today, Haley, we are talking about Nine Perfect Strangers, mm-hmm. a requested show, a very popular show uh, for a, a minute there in the end of 2022. 2021. It is 2021, right? We're not in 2022 yet. <laughs> We're so far in the future. <laughs> That's right. And it's on Hulu. It's it's a fascinating show that we are going to get all into all sorts mm-hmm. of mental health adjacent issues <laughs> that come up in this sort of very interesting setting. But first, let's let's check in here. What's what's on your mind related to the show or, yeah. or not? Totally. Yeah, I was um, thinking as we were watching this about how the wellness industry is just so wide ranging and far reaching um, and also a really popular area of particularly American Western culture. And I was wondering, is there any time in your life where you kind of bought into some wellness kind of thing? And what was it like for you? Yeah, I have. (laughs) You know, I I consider myself pretty open minded in the sense that like, I'm happy to try something at least once. So yes, the answer is yes, I have. And Uh that thing was comes up in in Nine Perfect Strangers that is a sort of sensory deprivation tank floating. Really? I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found out I was like walking through a town not far from where I live. And I saw floating or whatever it was whatever the place was called Uh and I was like oh that's interesting I wonder what that is I did some research and I was like well now I'm very curious so I did it once and then I did it two more times after that to kind of play around with how long and what the difference is and all sorts of sort of uh, variables and impressive I mean it was it's a very unique experience if you don't know what it is basically you're in a tank a very like huge tank like you can stretch out your arms and legs in all directions and you wouldn't be able to touch the walls mm-hmm. and the water has epsom salt in it which has a very high buoyancy effect mm-hmm. so you float basically effortlessly and it's a little almost like unnerving at first because you for me it was like my head i kept expecting my head to sink underwater but you kind of get used to it after a while but it's weird because it's oh, fully dark and the water is set to your skin temperature, basically. So once you, you're settled for a couple of minutes, there's basically no sensory input. You can't see anything. You can't hear anything. You can't I feel anything tactile. I don't think I'm a try anything once kind of person. Okay. <laughs> now that we're talking about it, I'm like, that sounds terrifying. And then I was like, oh, there's a lot of things they did in this show that I was like, I'm not doing that ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so funny. Wow. Did you like it? So... 
I tried different lengths of time. I did like half an hour and then I did an hour. I didn't dislike it. It's such a weird experience now in retrospect. There were things about it that I found enjoyable. And then Mm -hmm. there were things that just kind of either like I got bored or I fell asleep. And it's just like, okay, like, what is this supposed to be for versus what I'm actually getting from it? And yeah, you know, yeah. Is it sold as like something that's going to solve something or is it just sold as like, Uh, yes, this is a nice experience? No, no, it's totally sold. It's supposed to reduce, they say it has sort of good effects on stress, which like, of course, everything does, right, in the wellness industry. Mm-hmm. But specifically for your body, you know, they say it helps with things like inflammation and okay. I mean, that makes muscle sense. soreness because, yeah, because you're essentially losing all of the, the pressure on yeah. your on your muscles and on your body where you can, in theory, completely relax. So, yeah. You know, especially done with some level of it that has okay. um, good, like, recuperative effects for people who are, you know, nice. using their muscles. Yeah. I dig it. So, you know, I, it's something that, you know, I, I think about it from time to time. Like, oh, would I want to try that again? But I haven't done it in years now. So. Yeah. I think I would try that once. I don't, I don't know. Have you ever done the those freeze tanks? You know, like the... No. The super sub... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cryotherapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That just seems like it hurts. That's I'm curious about that one. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. I run pretty warm, and I, I like it that way. So I don't uh-huh. know if I would enjoy that. I feel like I would just be cold and sad. Well, when we have a Patreon, we will have a $1,000 a month level. And if anybody joins at that, we will make Ryan go in a cryogenic freeze. Oh, sure. I'll, I'll be a guinea pig. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. So I don't know if you have anything, but I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about weird floating experiences yeah. all, all, all episode. I was more thinking that along the lines of like that I'll try anything once and I take that back um, because I'm pretty mid-range risk averse. Sure. But I definitely have tried like odds and ends like for a while like and maybe still like spirulina in your smoothies was a thing and I tried it once and I was like okay I'm so not for this and so I gave it to uh, (laughs) Carmen Thulin who joined us for one of our episodes last year. I also for a while did the like replace one meal with the like cayenne pepper and lemon water apple oh, vinegar sure. thing. That magical mixture. Yeah. <laughs> didn't get it. Like didn't understand what it was supposed mm. to be doing for me. I've done so many like odds and ends and like sometimes things make me feel good, but like I often wonder like, oh, is it a is it a placebo effect? You know, because when you switch things up, you kind of break a lot of the habits that you fall into naturally. And so then it's like, are you just kind of switching things up and living more holistically anyway? But yeah, I can't think of any like particular thing that I've bought into, but I've definitely tried a lot of different things just to be like, well, sure. What does that taste like? (laughs) (laughs) And I love turmeric in my tea so if that is there you go so you, you find something helpful yeah yeah totally i just think it's tasty <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so you know a little bit of odds and ends which would have sort of fit me in perfectly for this uh, retreat because they were a lot of odds and ends <laughs> they, they they threw everything at the wall just to see what would stick yeah they really so yeah did. so we, we didn't <laughs> we, we didn't quite get to those extremes no. either one of us but no. we're gonna get into into nine perfect strangers and kind of go through everything that these folks went to um 
and and break down what's real and not. So stick around after the break and we will get into nine perfect strangers. Hey everyone, Ryan here. No ad this week, but a quick request. We would love to know where you follow us. So if you wouldn't mind taking 10 seconds while you're listening to today's episode, reach out to us on your social media of choice. Say hi, say what's up, request an episode topic. We would love to hear from you. And now back to the episode. Pop Psych 101 discusses mental health as it is portrayed in pop culture media. And because of this, we often cover sensitive topics that can be triggering for some listeners. We also delve into the characters and plots of these stories, and therefore, spoilers abound. So please, use your discretion as you listen to the rest of the episode. Based on the New York Times bestselling book by author Leanne Moriarty, Nine Perfect Strangers takes place at a boutique health and wellness resort that promises healing and transformation Hmm. as nine stressed city dwellers try to get on a path to a better way of living. Watching them over during this 10-day retreat is the resort's director, Masha, a woman on a mission to reinvigorate their tired minds and bodies. However, these nine perfect strangers have no idea what is about to hit them. Yeah. And then they're off. So just just to kind of break down the strangers, right? So we have Jessica and Ben, who's the couple who mm-hmm. uh, actually does not at least initially end up getting psychedelics. Mm-hmm. They're there because they're there for relationship stuff. They get a whole different course of treatment, which we'll talk about. We have Francis and Tony. Mm-hmm. Francis, the romance author who's sort of recovering from a catfishing situation, which was uh-huh. interesting. The undeniable Melissa McCarthy. Absolutely. Yeah, one of, by far one of my favorite characters. She's great. Tony is a sort of ex-football player mm-hmm. who is now addicted to painkillers. We have Lars, who is a journalist, at least initially in disguise, but then is just sort of outed as a journalist that ends up like recording this whole experience mm-hmm. while at Tranquillum. We have the Marconi family, Zoe, Napoleon, and Heather, who are there recovering from the sort of grieving process of their son and Zoe's twin brother, Zach. And then we have, oh, that's everybody. Oh, no, Carmel. Oh, no. She hates being dismissed. How dare you? I'm so sorry, Carmel. <laughs> I was looking through everybody and I and I, I had got into the, the workers oh, of no. the uh, the retreat. No, so we also have Carmel, who at least initially is just someone who presents herself as someone who's there to transform herself, her mm-hmm. life and her mindset and her body and all these things that she says. And it gets becomes clear that that is not the only reason that she is there. Mm-mm. And then we have our trio of Tranquillum counselors, therapists. We don't know what to call them. We're going to talk about that. Yao, Delilah, and Glory. And then, of course, we can't forget about Masha, played by Nicole Kidman. So we have this fascinating cast of characters. Mm -hmm. And in these sort of initial stages, it's just like, oh, they're going to this cool place. Oh, this place is a little odd. You know, no Mm -hmm. phones. And they're sort of immediately set into some degree of isolation and they're starting to meet each other. But we start to get this sense that this is going to be a weird experience. And it's to differing degrees how weird the people know it's going to be. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, they all kind of come in not knowing what to expect. Yep. Yeah. And that's, and that's so freaky. That's <laughs> an unusual. Yeah, it's pretty unusual, yeah. right? Because 
you know, you think about retreats and you think about wellness places where people go for things like I've heard of like silence retreats and diet mm-hmm. retreats and writing retreats. And for this one to, to sort of sign up, or I guess as they sort of acknowledge that Masha essentially recruits them because she has so many applicants, but she's able to mm-hmm. kind of handpick people to sort of be the, I guess, cohort for each 10 day process. Uh-huh. They don't really know what they're signing up for. No, her marketing is like not marketing. They sort of acknowledge that, that it's just all word of mouth, that people yeah. have these sort of transformative experiences and then tell all their friends, basically. So yikes indeed. So we we pretty quickly get a sense that there are going to be some very interesting experiences that these characters are going through. Yeah. Immediately they're like, here, drink this thing, drink it all. And whatever yep. you do, don't share it with anyone. Immediately I was like, nope. Not drinking it. Sorry. <laughs> right. And and they say confiscate the cell phones. There, there's blood work. There's uh, oh, yeah. consent forms and non-disclosure agreements. So right away, it's like, okay, something about this place is either absurdly private or possibly controversial because of, you know, how they're handling the the initiation into the, yeah. the place that they are going to be staying yeah. for a little while, right? And something they never really talk about is that, like, every inch of it has cameras. Like, she, at the beginning, in the first two episodes... Cameras that we soon see that Masha is watching. Yeah. Yeah. They use it for the first two episodes, and then they never, like, bring it up ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, when when we think about these sorts of retreat centers, right, And, and we should say up front, like, this, this is, this one's supposed to be in, like, Northern California now. Um, what ends up happening here obviously is illegal, but these places do exist in the world where yeah. you can go to places and get psychedelics, consenting psychedelics. Yes. And for the perfect strangers to end up there, not know what they're getting, mm-hmm. and then sort of embark on this journey unbeknownst to them, you know, I think is sort of our initial problem. We don't find that out, out until what, episode three or four? But mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it's a bombshell. All of a sudden, we are questioning everything about their experience up to that point and what it's going to be like as they move forward. Yeah. And also the idea that she could make some choices for them without their consent immediately made me be like, well, she's told them this part of the information, but what hasn't she told them? I immediately was like, right. you know, she's verbally getting consent now after the fact but what about all of the other stuff that she just conveniently left out? Which is interesting because they do sign consent forms at the beginning and they indicate, for instance, that like Lars didn't read his. So part of me mm-hmm. was like, is she going to bring up like, actually, you guys did consent to this because it was in the paperwork, but that never came up. And the narrative continued that it was non-consented. It was undisclosed. Well, right. Right. She tried to get around it by saying, like, as soon as they knew, they all decided yeah. to stay, which then sort yeah, of established the consent. consent. Yeah. But, yeah, but it's so interesting. So she tries to defend it. And and obviously, we're skipping into this point, but I think it's one of the, the biggest aspects of this treatment experience, which is that mm-hmm. these, I guess we call them patients. I don't, I don't really know what to refer to attendees. them as. Strangers, patients. Attendees, great. <laughs> so these attendees are unknowingly moderately dosed with psychedelics Uh in this case um, i believe masa acknowledges that it's psilocybin or magic mushrooms or Mm -hmm. depending on who you talk to well and then later she also mentions lsd lsd and then the the couple actually got um mdma 
Molly, no. right? Molly, MDMA. Yeah. yeah. So there are a variety of drugs apparently that she has access to to dose her attendees with intentionally, and I should say intentionally or not. Obviously, it's intentional, but unknowingly or yeah. knowingly. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, and she tries to justify it by saying, because of the situation that they were in, if they had known about it ahead of time, they would have declined. <laughs> Right. If they had known, like, this is what we do here, we give you psychedelics from from Masha's perspective, they would have not been interested in the treatment, which is exactly why you get consent is because, well, right, people won't choose to do it. Right. And and they should have at least some degree of choice um, or no, I, I, sh- I think it's safe to say they should have full awareness and choice yeah. in terms of what treatment they're being subjected to. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. It's an interesting perspective in the sense that, you know, and this is sort of what like the guru mm-hmm. trap is, right? It's sort of giving yourself over to someone's supposed expertise. Mm-hmm saying like i'll do whatever you say you know or like because that's essentially what it feels like these people was like oh masha so so mysterious she's Mm -hmm. this person that changes people's lives so you're already of the mindset that she kind of knows better Mm -hmm. and i think that's what kind of in many ways leads them to be like oh okay well we didn't know about it but we're having an okay time so far so maybe you know what you're doing and it's just a wild manipulation on on Masha's part and it seems like she has very little qualms about it what I think a very key part too about what makes like the kind of guru thing different than just kind of trusting the expertise of someone who does who is knowledgeable is a promise of 100% results across the board simply if you trust and do it which hopefully other professionals or other knowledgeable people aren't offering because there are very few things that have that uh, definite of results, right? So even if you're taking medications, it's like for most people, you know, for X percent of people, these are the the results. But for her, she's like, oh, I'm promising that you'll be free from struggle. I promise that you'll transform. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is kind of what makes it different from you know like you and i for instance we have people come in and we say like hey here's some things that i know and i'm going to work with you and if we work together i I can't even get myself to like say it but we will what we will say (laughs) is we'll say like hopefully you will see changes in your life that are meaningful to you and if you don't we'll do something different and we'll find a way that it works for you she is like, no, come, you have to do this this way. Drink all of it. Don't share it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it'll be yep. your fault that there isn't transformation. And really kind of like promising results that you can't promise. And she well, sure yeah, does. And that's, yeah. And I guess I'm, I'm really curious, you know, if you know, these attendees, you know, showed up and were essentially given like different paths they could go down where it's like, here's the hallucinogenic path. Mm-hmm. where you'll get this in your smoothie every day and that you'll have this type of experience mm-hmm. or you can just do the you know lie in an open grave and you know <sighs> screaming therapy and um, and you can do all these things without the hallucinogen and you may have a therapeutic benefit from these experiences it may be a different one but this path is also available that it would be fascinating to then say then see people say oh interesting 
you know, and I think like Napoleon says, like he wants more information. He wants to see the research, which I think are all like totally reasonable questions mm-hmm. that someone would evaluate when they're making this kind of consent decision. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then feeling good about the decision, you know, they don't acknowledge set and setting as it relates to hallucinogen use really until the end of this series. But I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I think it has a really big impact on why, especially those initial couple of days, really didn't show any kind of, I should say not any, uh, but not as much of a significant benefit as when once the attendees had knowledge and consent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for people who don't know, obviously hallucinogenic therapy is something that is a real thing and it is usually micro to moderate dosing Mm -hmm. and it's a a very controlled process Mm -hmm. you know you're in a calm space so they Mm -hmm. i should i should back up so set and setting so this refers to what your mindset is in other words sort of what here what what is the goal what do you want to experience Mm -hmm. as a part of this potentially hallucinogenic experience yeah like an intention Yeah, exactly. And then the setting is the physical and sort of social environment. Where are we? Who are we with? So it's like your internal context and your external context. Okay. Exactly. But if you don't know you're getting dosed, you can't, you both can't set your internal setting, right? So you Mm -hmm. can't make sure the thing you're sort of focusing on or the goals that you're setting for yourself are mm-hmm. aligned with that hallucinogenic experience. And this is why some people have like very disturbing hallucinogenic experiences sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you also, if you're not controlling for the environment and if the counselors in this case aren't very attending to your physical and social environment, mm-hmm. you can really be negatively impacted by yeah. that. Like seeing your so, nose fall off. You seeing your nose, oh my God, that was... <laughs> That was rough. Yeah. Um, But even like wandering through the woods, going Mm -hmm. to a cliff, like being in a pool, all these extremely dangerous Mm -hmm. scenarios that all could have, you know, played out very differently for our attendees. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding for using psychedelics in a therapeutic sense, it's generally below hallucinogenic level. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, so even in the therapeutic setting, you know, they're not trying to sort of send you off onto full hallucination. Mm -hmm. The goal typically is to kind of get close to that. So you can, you know, a common experience, and I'm pulling a lot of this from sort of one of the sort of modern really textbooks, which is called How to Change Your Mind. Mm-hmm. Great book. If you can if you can get it, I definitely highly recommend it because it kind of goes into really like what the future of this could look like if the researchers continue to be approved. So yeah, you would be uh, like on a couch, eyes closed or a mask. Maybe you'd have headphones on, calming music, and you would just be you and the therapist. Mm-hmm. And that is the sort of ideal set and setting. Mm-hmm. And Tranquillum goes in like the complete opposite direction you from that. You mean that you wouldn't be set free in a place with all sorts of hidey holes and be guided by somebody who is also on hallucinogenic hallucinogenics? That's not No, would you wouldn't you therapy? probably wouldn't do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's shocking to me. That feels like it was so accurately portrayed. <laughs> I know. Well, and, and you know, I guess we should say also that, you know, in the 
in some other cultures, right? We talk about things like ayahuasca tea. Mm -hmm. There are some other like spiritual practices that invoke um, hallucinogens as part of, yeah. you know, different spiritual activities. And in those, they absolutely might have someone who is your guide and might mm -hmm. take the hallucinogen along with you. Okay. That is but a again, shared those experience. Also in, yeah. And, but those are also still very controlled environments. Yeah. You know, you're not, uh, as you said, like set free in the woods. Yeah. You know, I think the closest they counselors get to, you know, setting boundaries is like, don't go in the water and don't go near the cliff. And it's like, <laughs> those are the two obvious ones in which you might actually die. But there's uh -huh. so many other terrible things that could, and in many cases did happen for, yeah. our, for these people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what is such a kind of sad disservice in retreats like this or approaches like this is a lot of the things that are used um, and the techniques that are employed in this are really beneficial, meaningful techniques. If you like, A, actually do them and then B, process them, right? Like use them as a technique, that's, that's not right. as a solve all. And I think if we're ready to kind of go that yeah, direction. Yeah, let's go through them because I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's so many things that she, that they used right throughout the, throughout the episodes. And, you know, one of your favorite is the deprivation tanks. <laughs> <laughs> they also did other things that can be super meaningful for people in healing, like facing your fears, right? Jumping off the waterfall, mm -hmm. microdosing, saunas, the primal scream approach, eating healthy, having fun, right? The potato sack race. There was also the, what I would call an empty chair exercise where mm -hmm. Francis spoke to the man who catfished her. All of these are tr can truly be meaningful things if they're then processed, right? Like microdosing can be super beneficial according to the research as long as it's done right in the correct setting and mm -hmm. used as a technique, not as a solve. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's sort of what's sad about watching some of this for me was yeah. that all these people are coming into this situation in many ways hoping for that quick fix. I want to mm -hmm. be transformed. We want to save our marriage, mm -hmm. right? I want to, you know, overcome this this grief that experience that we've had. Mm -hmm. And and you know, I don't know if any of them would have said that they expect that to happen in 10 days. But I do think that in general, people absolutely go into some of these types of experiences just like, oh, I just, I just, if I think if I have the right kind of, yeah. you know, breakthrough that I'll just be, everything will be better. Everything mm -hmm. will be okay. And I think you're nailing it here that some of these things have therapeutic value, but even in those activities, there is still work that has to be done. Yeah. There's still that sort of emotional work, that processing, even in the places in which psychedelic therapy exists, it is done, it really specifically, and in many cases, like intense therapy is done prior to, during, and yep. then for months after, in many yeah. cases, the actual psychedelic use. Well, and I also think something as simple as like primal screams, mm -hmm. Zoe does it in the sauna with Lars, I think. Lars, yes. Something so simple, right? Any of us could go and scream right now. Yeah. Interestingly mm -hmm. enough, most of us won't, right? Which tells you that there is yeah. a lot of like rule setting and emotion and feelings and all this kind of stuff simply around screaming. So 
to have somebody in a place where they can just scream or we tell people like scream into your pillow. The follow-up questions would be like, how did that feel? Right? Mm -hmm. Like where, what was the experience like for you? And if the person's like, oh my gosh, it felt so weird because I was like, what if my neighbors can hear hear me? That's got a whole bunch of information, right? Like what Mm -hmm. role do other people's opinions of you play in your choices? Or if it said like, oh my gosh, that was so relieving. It was like, oh, is this one of the first times that you've actually allowed yourself to express emotion like in this way? How do you normally express your emotions? And that's, you know, the most basic one, the screaming. But I think something kind of like that you said was, and it was also said by Tony, which is she's taking people who are in such desperation that they'll do anything. It's people who just want a quick fix. And if I've learned anything about healthy living in any area, for me at least, it's if you are results-based, it's just, it's not as meaningful as if you focus on the process. So if you're doing the microdosing, what is the process like for you? How does it interact with your world and your experience and your understanding? And then what can you take forward from that? And none of yeah. that kind of processing happens at any point. I think there's a hint of it maybe when Francis is beating up the mannequin afterwards. I think yes. there's a very brief moment. That was Carmel but, beats up the mannequin as well. Yeah. Yeah. That got the closest to yeah. therapy for me. But the rest was just kind of like, here's techniques. Go use them by yourself. Oh, and by the way, when you're in this deprivation chamber, you're going to have a huge traumatic reaction. And then you're going to come oh, out yeah. of it feeling fine. Like, that's just not how that happens. And I maybe there's somebody mm-hmm. out there who that's how it's happened for them. But generally, mental health requires a much grander process. Yeah. And and even just looking at, at Masha as a quote unquote therapist, right? The way in which she works with people when she has her one-on-ones with them, mm. she's super confrontational. It's sort of like immediately poking at whatever her perception of their pain or the reason that they're there is, mm-hmm. you know, and with someone's on mushrooms, that's not always the best way to process no. trauma, right? <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're in that headspace, right? If you don't have the right set. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause we have, you know, people like Tony who's having flashbacks to his injury and, mm. and opiate use. We have Napoleon who's having at the end, like auditory hallucinations of, you know, his phone alarm clock going off from the morning mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, his son took his own life. And it's like, you know, these are really intense, serious experiences. And the expectation that the experience alone does the healing is just not how any of this works. Mm-mm. Yeah. So you mentioned some of these experiences, you know, I wanted to ask you about the lying in the graves one as well, because that feels like that feels like a very um, like cliche example of like, oh, what did you do on your, you know, therapeutic wellness retreat? Oh, well, we had to dig our own graves and lie in them and and confront what it would be like to experience our own death or our own funeral. Uh Are you aware of any therapeutic value of that i've not i'm not familiar of anyone so or any place actually doing that intentionally as a yeah so the like that actual in benefit. depth i can't speak to i will say that in values-based work uh one question will be 
if someone were to give your eulogy, what would you want them to say? Totally. And that speaks to like, what kind of life do you hope that you lived? Because then that can speak to what you valued. So there is this sense of if your life were over, what life would you have hoped to have lived? Which I think is kind of the question of this technique. However, actually digging your grave and then getting in it and then having people throw dirt on you. No, not for me. <laughs> right. Where's the benefit in that part of it? Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I truly like if somebody was like, this happened at my wellness retreat and it was super meaningful for me, I would be like, yeah, I see it. Like I get it. Like some people really need experiential moments to kind of work mm -hmm. through stuff. I would, it, I won't even do a trust fall, let alone have somebody pour dirt on me while I'm lying in a grave. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Yeah, so I've never heard of it being done. However, like, I would be 0% surprised if somebody said that it had actually been done. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. Oh, it, it's for sure been done. And sort of, <laughs> I could see it having yeah. happened in real life. I guess I'm just, I, I haven't seen any evidence of it actually sort of having any specific therapeutic benefit. But but I'm with you on the sort of visualization and sort of, sort of processing that experience, sort of the imagination benefit that can come with that sort of an exercise, but mm -hmm. the actual sort of physical labor that... Masha seems to revel in putting them through. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not uh, yeah, I don't I'm not sure about that. That's so interesting though. If you think about it, if if you were to make it a therapeutic metaphor of yeah. the, like what kind of life uh, would you have wanted to live? I guess it could mm -hmm. be you are basically trudging your way to your grave, right? You're digging your grave as you live. So what kind of grave do you want to dig for yourself if you were a super nightmare before Christmassy kind of therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. And I guess when we talk about all these things put together into one place, it starts to feel like Masha had this traumatic near-death experience, which mm -hmm. she acknowledges to the attendees. Mm -hmm. And then she looked up all the sort of like unorthodox <laughs> therapeutic group exercises, uh -huh. put them all into one place threw some uh, hallucinogens on top and mm -hmm. called it tranquilum and was like, let's go. <laughs> yeah, totally. I don't know anything about, uh, I don't know anything about, you know, being a therapist, but I'm pretty sure I can do this. Yeah. And then it seems really scary, you know, when mm -hmm. you add all that stuff up together. Yeah. Well, because one thing that we kind of spoke about when we talked about in treatment was knowing your stuff as a therapist and how yes. that's affecting the people that you're working with. And clearly Masha is really grappling with death and that shows up right in digging your own graves mm -hmm. in really becoming entranced with trying to get this family to see their dead son and brother and then when she locks them all in the deprivation room and simulates a fire to get them to feel as though they're gonna die yep Clearly, like you said, there feels like a lot of focus on putting them through a lot of like physical torture, but then also like facing death in like literal ways um, a lot of the time. Yeah. By the way, I, I love that scene when Yao lets them out of that chamber and he's just like, yeah, well, this has been shown to have benefits, you know, when you confront your death and... Uh -huh you know, and you wrestle with uh, mortality and you deal with vulnerability in a more honest way. 
and he's clearly like terrified of those people and trying to like spit out the justification for locking them in there for that period of time yeah i'm like oh man this is this is like the worst case scenario of like an unethical treatment uh, site right where it's just like no we promise this is real uh-huh. like please don't sue us on your way out totally yeah my note said Yao looks so defeated <laughs> I like, know. I think he kind of realized at that point that he was like, you know what? Maybe Delilah's right. Like, maybe this isn't okay. Maybe this is a problem. Yeah, he seemed right. so defeated. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to go back to what you said, because I think people could watch this show and be, you know, in many ways, like justifiably concerned if Masha's, let's just say they think Masha is a good representative of what some therapists might be like. Mm. then there would be a justified fear of like, well, if every therapist just like is working through their own stuff, how can I trust anyone to be able to put their stuff to the side to just work with me without needing to kind of join me in the my experience as Masha obviously is? Yeah. Well, so every therapist is human. So they're all dealing with whatever their stuff is. And so it's not that you'll find a therapist who's not dealing with their stuff. It's just, are they dealing with it in your therapy or are they dealing with it in their own and if if there are moments where you're like is this about me Mm -hmm. i'm so i'm hesitating a little bit because there is self-disclosure right there is of course connecting with people through hey like i have been there or something like that and so If there's a moment where your therapist is telling a story or giving an example from their own life or something like that, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when you leave there kind of being like, I don't know that that was about me. Right. I think the next time to warning sign to look out for. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a great idea always to if you're especially meeting a therapist for the first time, you know, you're totally justified to ask whether or not. I guess whether or not or the extent to which they, let's say, have supervision or mm-hmm. how do they make sure that they have good boundaries in working with you. Like there are totally appropriate ways to ask these sorts of questions to make sure you are comfortable with their ability to focus on your issues. Because I think if you met a therapist for the first time and the way they introduced themselves was I had a near life, a near death experience, and that's why I became a therapist. Uh-huh. Now, why are you here? <laughs> like uh-huh. that would be establishing the relationship in a way that was more about the therapist stuff than yours, and I think that would be a red flag. But I think what you're talking about is sort of a different thing, where the therapist is sort of consciously weaving in self disclosure yeah. in response to, you know, potentially what a patient is sharing yeah. and being able to kind of offer some valuable relatable experience as a part of that treatment process yeah so you kind of said oh it's totally um i don't i don't know that appropriate is the word that you used but totally appropriate to ask your therapist like how do they manage their stuff do you think that that's a totally like natural so i guess maybe not appropriate it's not the right i guess so you're right. So that's totally fair. Not appropriate is not necessarily the right word, but I can understand why anyone would be curious or concerned about that. Yeah. So it's it's if you want to ask, feel free to ask. But yeah, I think yeah. what we're also saying is that the way that therapists answer that question will tell you a lot about their boundaries. Totally. So yep. and and that's why I'm saying that I understand people's concerns 
especially when you watch stuff like this. I mean, you and I have talked about all sorts of therapists. I mean, most therapists and the things that we talk about on this podcast are therapists with bad boundaries. We don't yeah. get a lot of good therapists, unfortunately. Hollywood likes them. Yeah, but but that's why I think, you know, when we talk about these examples, I think it is so important for people that when they watch this, you know, that doesn't become the sort of expectation of like, man, I'm really worried about like what my therapist is dealing with. Yeah. If this is the stuff that I see, right? Later this year, we should have a month of good therapists. We should okay, be like, good. you know, this we'll month we're out. only going to watch episodes <laughs> of TV shows where they have good therapists. <laughs> okay. Great. I, I love it as a goal. I hope we can find a few examples. I know at least one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I don't know. I guess because I, I, you know, sometimes when I watch shows like this with gurus or, you know, therapists with poor boundaries, I'm worried about people's perception of that yeah. and sort of how that would influence anyone, you know, who anyone who's on the fence about getting support, whether that's therapy, group therapy, going to a wellness retreat and, you know, seeing something like this. And it's like, oh, my God, like, uh, this is terrifying. Like, yeah. no, thank you. Yeah. I think it's important to kind of specifically distinguish how to make sure this is not going to be your experience. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that is set up to make that the case is consent, disclosure and consent. Mm -hmm. And yep. one thing that is very important and we're directly taught needs to be a part of consent is the ability to remove consent at any time. So the ability to walk away and say, I'm done. There are certain situations where that gets overridden by like holds and things like that. However, generally with consent, it's called informed consent is actually what it's called. So it's, here's what you can mm -hmm. expect. Do you agree to it? And then if you say yes, one of the things is at any time, for whatever reason, you can choose to end this study, end this treatment, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's really important for what you're speaking to now, which is this is kind of presented as like, if you sign up, you have to stay and you can't leave at any point. Now, another mm. caveat to this is something that you and I spoke about before we started recording was depending on who is guiding the, the setup of whatever the treatment is that you're doing. So what I mean by that is, you and I, as as therapy professionals, have different like ethical boards that we answer to mm -hmm. and have to do certain things to keep our license. If you are what I think Masha is, which is just a lady who's decided she's a therapist, she's not mm -hmm. licensed. She's not responding to any kind of ethical or professional board. So she doesn't really have to give certain meet certain requirements because who's holding her to that? Now, she can't break the law, but like, you know, maybe she says, no, in the consent, you said that you would stay here for 10 days without leaving no matter what, you know, and I like, I don't know, legally, are you allowed to do that? And I would guess not because I don't think you're allowed to hold people against their will. But I was just saying, so that, at, yeah. at what point does that become kidnapping? <laughs> yeah, totally. But that's also something to be really thoughtful of when you're receiving treatment, do a little bit of research, right? If you're looking at their website or something like do they have their license number mentioned or how did they get to be where they are and i think those are really important things when we are looking at people giving us advice about how to take care of ourselves is 
says who, right? Like, is there, mm-hmm. yep. is there a board or a, or a set of research papers or something that agree with this information that this person is giving us that, that agrees that this person is a reliable person to be getting this information from? Yep. Yeah. And I think that that's probably a better way to frame what I was discussing before, which is sort of the types of questions you could ask your therapist at Mm -hmm. the outset, you know, and maybe that includes more of like, what's your therapeutic approach, right? Yeah. How can I be sure that this is confidential? All those sorts of things, because I think that hopefully gets at what you want, which is a trusting, comfortable relationship. Yeah. And if you ever feel that you're being pressured into doing something that you don't want to do, question it. Ask your therapist Mm -hmm. why and like what's happening and what's the purpose and can we talk about it rather than doing it? That kind of stuff is really important in consent is making the decision because you want to make it, not because of pressure or anything like that. Yeah. So I think we need to spend at least a a little bit of our rest of our episode here talking about the sort of conclusion to this show right the series because a lot of stuff goes down (laughs) tranquilum for the win (laughs) sure so it's like despite all of this unethical stuff somehow ends up everyone ends up having a happy ending but before the happy endings you know so we we find out carmel is actually the person that almost killed masha because masha as it turned out was the person that had an affair with Carmel's husband. One of them. One of the people. And that Carmel was there, uh, as Carmel says, not to kill her, but maybe to scare her, maybe to show her, threaten her a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, surprise, surprise, that mixed with hallucinogens Mm -hmm. did not mix well for Carmel or for Masha. Yeah. Well, and when she approached Masha in the garage with the gun, Masha dismissed her and so that's why she shot her so Ryan you you better watch your back because you dismissed Uh, you know I want to apologize to Carmel (laughs) wherever you are right now yes (laughs) but you know Carmel makes it somehow through through a lockdown right which we could also talk about as as an unethical practice Mm -hmm. and most cases obviously there are some extreme cases in which hospitals and things like that do lockdown but you know, she goes through lockdown. She goes through um, sensory de- un- involuntary sensory deprivation. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! She wakes up in which it. Which I oh, cannot that's relate terrifying. to. <laughs> yes, that is terrifying. Absolutely oh. terrifying. Oh, I'd be miserable. And then she's locked in with everybody else in the room in which they think a fire is happening and they're all going to die. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Carmel goes through all of that, and then like the closing scene is Carmel looking very different and like leading a group therapy session seem like the biggest leap for me mm-hmm. but it's just sort of like they crammed so much carmel story than there in an episode and a half that it's sort of hard to know what to do with all of that right because it's such an intense backstory so as you were talking i was because you said that one felt like the the biggest leap so i was running through all of them thinking like is there sure. a bigger yep. leap um and mm-hmm. yeah i would say like her or tony but i think What's also so interesting is even at the end when they've kind of gone through all of this, she's doing this group therapy thing and she says, all I needed was to be given permission to feel my feelings or be forgiven or forgive my, oh, be given Mm -hmm. permission to forgive myself. And so I give all of you permission to forgive yourselves as though there is a single (laughs) solution that's just going to solve the problem. Like, oh, 
Oh my gosh, or like the magic phrase. Here I give you permission to forgive yourselves. Go forth and have the rest of your life be perfect. (laughs) Like, imagine, even at the end, I just really got really frustrated with like everybody having this like dream life at the end because Mm -hmm. it made it seem like the ends justify the means. Like there was this right that even though Masha did all these unethical, terrible things, yeah, Yeah. no one, no one ultimately paid any price for it. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. also we're like on her side and defending her and like lying to protect her, and I'm like, I'm grateful and happy for all of you that this happened, but like, no, it does. The one man died because of it. Like, it, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't it doesn't justify the means at all. It Oh, I didn't like it. I was so unhappy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty confusing because I think, you know, and everybody's noticing right in that second to last into the last episode that like the wheels are coming off the bus. I yeah. think one of the characters says, right, uh-huh. Jessica, uh, Jessica, you know, because Jessica and, and Ben are doing better they're communicating they're renewing their vows everything great that's the one that sort of felt the closest to realistic not the deciding to work at tranquilum i don't understand that sort of leap at all it's the leave the money behind and become focused on yeah and they just want a job and yeah and they want to keep meeting people okay like I, i see where and why they they did it but wow anyway i struggle with that one you know, the Francis-Tony relationship, I'll just put it this way, having worked in inpatient settings, like relationships form all the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very common experience for people to be in these sorts of settings and to, you know, not that it always works out well, but to form, you know, intimate bonds with each other. Yeah, I agree. I think one thing, um, and this kind of, you know, we'll run into our ratings, but one thing that I think was done really well in this entire series was the interpersonal relationships were so realistically represented. Sometimes a little bit like quick, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, particularly with like Francis and Tony, the way that they have this like push and pull and her hurt gets in the way. And so she pushes him away. Like it was also beautifully done and i do think on retreats and on trips where you're kind of removed from your regular world and put into environments that are all of you together all the time i do mm-hmm. think very and vulnerable and vulnerable and vulnerable that's a very important piece you're open and you're vulnerable and you're you're all there together and you are connecting with people without the like distraction of life I do think very intimate relationships are formed. And so it's not surprising at all. Even, you know, like Carmel and Lars kind of hate each other at first and then they start to care about each other. I think that happens as well. So I think that those were all like really well represented within the context of strangeness. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Because I think that's maybe the two of them kind of found the most resolution to their respective problems, right? Mm -hmm. We saw Frances in many ways confront either through her hallucinations or empty chair, like her catfishing experience. Yeah, we saw Tony, you know, and this is one of the most legitimate uses of psychedelics that we saw. From early research, it has been shown that microdosing psychedelics can have and is none of this is like 
like solid, solid. proven yeah. you can go get psychedelic treatment right for for addiction but it has been shown to have some positive effect on addiction so Makes the sense. fact that tony's able to come off of painkillers is at least well from what we know right now like based in some reality mm -hmm. so tony and francis have some powerful experiences and obviously make a connection with each other and i do think that that's sort of like the most realistic outcome from the the characters that kind of emerge from tranquillum yeah except that they're both so okay right like the, sure. when they fast for yeah. i think that in the restaurant yep. that's super realistic right where it's like still in shock yeah but then they like show this like life in the future where he's back on yeah. good terms with his daughters and she's got a puppy that and they live like together it. in this beautiful yep. home and mm -hmm. like i'm sure those things could happen but it's done in this like golden hue sure. of like happily ever after <laughs> well right well it's way more realistic that a relationship like that just kind of fizzles out or even becomes problematic because of the let's face it probably untreated trauma that they yeah. both still have yeah. right and also real life can get in the way oh absolutely right and then we have the marconis who we haven't talked about a whole lot but i think we need to give some time here because in the last episode it's really all about them and their attempt at having a shared psychotic event mm -hmm. you know that's not how masha describes it but that's more or less what we're going for here right yeah that was so wild. <laughs> yeah. 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 I like was, and I think it's, it was done intentionally, but I was kind of confused for a lot of it. And I think it's because it's supposed mm -hmm. to be this like drug addled, who knows what's happening kind of thing. Like what's real and what's not. Yeah. Yeah. I, my, I kept on kind of being like, could they, all three of them have a conversation with the same hallucination and have it be like a, clear conversation the way that they did it and i was like i don't think that they can no there's there's nothing that's been i mean you'll you'll anecdotally you'll read things about you know shared again shared psychosis yeah. shared hallucination and there's there's some anecdotal reports around what people feel like is sort of almost like I don't want to say telepathy, but feeling like they can read other people's thoughts. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of the closest thing we can get. Like the idea that, let's say, Zoe could hear what exactly Napoleon's her dad. hallucination yeah. was saying to him, Yeah, I think is a probably a bridge too far. But, yeah. you know, it's when we're getting into, you know, Hollywood license yeah, <laughs> yeah basically fictional yeah you know, what we're dealing with to to represent what what masha wanted to happen for them which was you know them all to kind of have this powerful closure experience with their their various difficulties letting go of what happened with zach taking his own life yeah what i do think that was really like kind of well represented in those zach hallucinations were how whatever the individual's thoughts were or fears were about his um, suicide, that was what was represented in their interactions with him. So like the mom was worried that it was her fault. And in her interaction, mm -hmm. he gets angry with her for it being her fault, which is what her mind would do, right? Because that's her narrative. About oh, totally. It. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. And actually at one point, Zoe asks him a question and he says, oh, I can only tell you what you already know. Like I'm, he's like, basically he's like, I'm a hallucination. Yeah. I can only tell you what you already right, know. He can only, yeah, yeah, right, right. One thing that I did really love from all that is, so he starts out kind of like angry and then as they get more in touch, he becomes more gentle. And I think that showed like how the grief process actually happens, but 
mm-hmm. you know, artistically. He said the line, yeah. you have to separate me from that day. And I thought yeah. that that was really powerful because for people whose family members commit suicide or for people whose family members, they they saw their family members have a heart attack or something like that, that memory becomes the whole person. And then you lose a whole lifetime of of love and memories and it boils down to this one moment. And so I really like that he was like, you have to separate me from that day. That was essentially one choice that I made in my whole lifetime. And you have a lifetime before that of me. And I thought that was really beautiful. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the sort of resolution that they get from this experience, again, sort of whether it's based in what's actually possible psychedelics or not, it does feel based in some reality around you know let's say family therapy you know when if they were doing this work exactly yeah to kind of confront some of the um, resistance they have to acceptance Mm -hmm. you know the sort of cliche of letting go moving on that they could definitely have some of these sort of shared emotional experiences whether they're hallucinating the the son being there or not yeah in episode two the mom or zoe says we're runners and my comment was is this going to be an emotional metaphor and it was they were so like avoided (laughs) and they kept running from it and they're you know yeah or then they were running towards him at the end looking for him yeah 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 Yeah. wow so you know and then we didn't talk too much about lars but lars kind of felt just like he was just supposed to be there to document and then he was sort of having his own some of his you know emotional processing was happening i thought the the dream where he was having a baby and tony was the father was funny mm-hmm. you know and they they try to give some time to that sort of dilemma that he was having in his relationship outside of tranquilum but it was more just felt like he was going to be the lens through which he was going to observe the in many cases, like absurdity and unethical nature of the way things were being conducted yeah. there. He was kind so. of the control case, I think. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. That's a way to put it. Yes. Where he's human and was had human struggles like the rest of them, but it was he mm-hmm. his reason for being there wasn't some grander struggle. His reason for being there was that she wanted him to document. Yeah. 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 And so so then, as we said, we have this kind of crazy ending. Uh, you know, obviously, Masha gets arrested for after Delilah reports her to the authorities. Mm-hmm. But as far as we can tell, no long term consequences. She drives off into the sunset in the yellow Lamborghini. <laughs> and Lambo, and yeah. I guess everything's fine for her. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> so we're left to kind of wrestle with what the appropriate takeaway is from this show was it yeah. was it okay that she did this if everyone's happy afterwards and i think like you said the ends kind of justifying the means and i think that leads us very well into our reviews yeah. so haley on a scale of zero to five yellow lamborghinis mm-hmm. how would you rate the accuracy of what we saw in nine perfect strangers and i'll let you interpret accuracy of what in whatever way you see absolutely to be appropriate yeah so I think this is going to be fairly shocking, but I'm going to say a four. <laughs> and the reason yeah. why I say four is because, like I said earlier, the people and the interpersonal relationships and the human struggle, I think, is beautifully represented. Each of these people, the thing that they bring in is realistic and real and the hurt and the pain that they've struggled is with is is 
incredibly represented. So like the the mental health of the the nine strangers as well as Delilah, I think are really well represented. The other three, Masha and Yao and Gloria, it's questionable. Sure. But the rest of them, I think, like really well represented the grief, the relationship struggles, fears, anger, that kind of stuff. I also think they spoke to how wellness can be misrepresented and misused in a mm-hmm. way that it truly is misrepresented and misused in the world. So that's why the fact that it's so wild and so unethical doesn't take away from my rating for this is because I was like, this truly happens. And also, yep. like we mentioned, all the not all of these, well, I would I can't off the top of my head think of one of these things that wouldn't work, but all of these things could work really well. And a lot of them have research showing that they do as long as they are done within the context of like a process, um, a therapeutic process. Yep. Where it loses a point is it's, I think, the way they share the like kind of more artistic parts of it, um, like the shared hallucinations and the ease with which everybody's just fine and things like that kind of <laughs> ruins it for me. But I think kind of except so i guess i could say like except for the ending so much of it is like well represented even though it's not an ideal portrayal of what we would want it yeah and i think we've we've been in a similar position before where it's like unfortunately this thing might exist in the real world yeah it almost certainly does <laughs> but just be yeah but just because it might exist in the world, real world does not mean it's a good representation of uh, this sort of ideal, right? Yeah. Or what you would want to look for should you be in the market for a retreat experience. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so then the part that kind of took a point away for me was was the artistic area of it. So that leads us into our review for you. On a scale from zero to five goats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the poor goat. <laughs> I know. Well, see, she's obsessed with death. Yeah. Zero to five goats. How entertaining did you think this series was? Yeah. So I watched the first episode months ago at the suggestion of one of our wonderful listeners yeah. because I, I wasn't sure if if this was going to be something that I because I you know I heard people talking about oh you mm-hmm. know check out the series okay and then I watched the first episode and I I was already kind of annoyed at the first episode because I was like oh man this is gonna be one of those shows with the crazy guru and it kind of played out that way a little bit but I will say it got more entertaining over time mm-hmm. so once I got into like the second or third episode and especially then it's like oh my gosh now we're dealing with hallucinogens I found myself getting more engaged it felt a little bit more binge worthy as we got more and more intense so I will give that to it that you know the intensity whether it was you know whether they gave each individual character sort of enough room to breathe you know I could quibble with that a little bit but I have to say out of other things that I've watched over the past year, things for this podcast and not I wanted to finish it I wanted to finish the series I wanted to find out what happened and I think that speaks positively to its entertainment value so to all that end out of five goats I will give this yeah I have to say it's it's a four for me as well I can't go full entertaining because Mm -hmm. uh, you see a lot of 
quite funny criticism, actually, of uh, Nicole Kidman's Russian accent. Oh, jeez. And some other, like, goofy stuff that I also kind of had to struggle with kind of staying in the reality of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's what happens when you cast a very, very famous actor or actress in a part like this. So, yeah. So, yeah. But overall, it was entertaining. It's bingeable. It's only eight episodes. But there are eight episodes that feel much longer than eight episodes. Yeah. At one point, I was like, I'm on episode like six, and I was on episode three. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that that is a positive sign of its entertainment value or not, but it is really sort of chock full of like stuff to chew on. So so that's how we felt about Nine Perfect Strangers. Take it or leave it. Yeah, fours across the board. Yes. We're glad you came along for the ride with us. And we know this has been a long episode, so we thank you for sticking with us. And we hope you continue to send us some great suggestions. We have a lot of exciting shows and movies that we have yet to announce coming up. So please follow us on all of the social medias and look out and please send us more suggestions. We love covering the things that you guys want to see us cover. And thank you as always for listening. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.